Alrighty, let's get to Second Timothy chapter 1, and we are going to find ourselves this evening in verse 8. And your bulletin, I believe, says down through verse 14, but we're only going to make our way to the first phrase of verse 12. And you say, well, why, why that stopping point? Because that's the first time that Paul took a breath. Uh, he starts in verse 8 into a very Pauline sentence that doesn't end until the beginning of verse 12. It's just one huge, enormous sentence. And some of your translations may have thrown some periods in there to try to dice it up a little bit to help Paul out, since the guy is uh, obviously grammatically challenged. He strings together these thoughts, and he continues on, and really it doesn't get, it always goes all the way until verse 12, and that's where we're going to go this evening. And uh, we'll wrap up in the uh, first section there of verse 12. But we'll come back and obviously spend next week dealing with verses 12, 13, and 14. And I think that that'll be a fitting conclusion to what we'll look at this evening. If you're brand new with us, the Apostle Paul is in Rome. He's in a dungeon. He is being persecuted by Nero. Uh, Rome is already burned. And Nero has already been blamed for Rome burning and he has already shuffled off the blame that was placed on him, rightly. He has already shuffled that off onto the Christians. And uh, the greatest persecution that the church ever knew is underway as the Roman Empire is looking for Christians. And they have all the excuse necessary from the top down to persecute and to kill and to enslave Christians. And so Paul was released from prison in Rome. Now he's back in prison in Rome and he is very conscious, as we see through this letter, he is aware that he's not getting back out of prison. He's not going to get back out of the hole that they called a prison in Rome. He'll die there. And so what we have in Second Timothy are his last words. This is the final letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the direction of the Holy Spirit, and it is the final thought of the apostle and what a fascinating study it is it actually in this uh in your bible is not chronological titus would come between these two letters obviously because chronologically we would be in trouble if this is the last one and titus is written by paul as well uh it, first timothy then titus chronologically and then second timothy and we find the last words of the apostle paul written to his young protege we're very familiar with him his name is timothy he is the pastor right now in Ephesus, when we come to this letter in context. He is serving there by the direct appointment of the Apostle Paul, who met him in his hometown as he was traveling on his missionary journey, and found Timothy to be a young man of faith, an extraordinary faith, and a faith that was passed on through a heritage of women who were faithful in their belief and confidence in Christ. And so Paul took him, and nurtured him, and developed him, and taught him, both through his life and through his words, to follow and to serve Christ. Not only that, but Timothy was a very gifted servant of Christ as well. He had a special gifting for the leadership role in which he was serving. He was a teacher. He was a preacher of the gospel. And Paul continually will commend him to fan into flame the gift that he has, his spiritual gifting for the, the purpose of serving the church. So Timothy, I'm sure, was uh, saddened at the news that Paul had been rearrested, that he had been put back in prison, and Timothy was very aware of the climate for the Christians, and no doubt was, was very aware of the situation and the dire situation that the Apostle Paul was in. So when this letter arrived, no doubt Timothy was excited to break the seal, 
to open this up, to read it in private, and then to publicly read it before the believers. And Paul, as always, even in his private letters, he is writing for the benefit of the church, and indirectly, in the providence of God, he's writing for our benefit. In fact, the very last word of this letter, in verse 22 of chapter 4, the Lord be with your, your spirit, grace be with you. And you have a little number probably in your translation that goes above you. And if you look down in your margin or if you look down at the bottom of your page or whatever the copy of Scripture does to help you see this, it'll say the Greek for you is plural. Paul is writing these last words. He says, grace be with you all. Or in the southern vernacular, grace be with y'all. That was what Paul was trying to say. It's plural. And that's the better way of saying it, y'all. And we should adopt that here, y'all. Okay? No, I'm just teasing. But Paul is plural. He's singular in his attention to Timothy, but he is understanding in the plural that this is for the church and this is for us. As he's moved along by the Holy Spirit and the completed work of Second Timothy is the inspired letter that we have before us this evening. Now, last week, we just looked at the second part. We spent the last two weeks looking at the introductory material in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Paul gives us just the nuts and bolts in verses 1 and 2. He gives a blessing. He prays a blessing over Timothy for grace, mercy, and peace from God. And then he launches into verse 3, and he gives gratitude and remembrance of who Timothy is and of what God has done in Timothy's life, all for the purpose of, at the conclusion of that section, to remind Timothy. So it's all about remembering in verses 3 through 7. Paul remembering a lot of things that went on in Timothy's life, a lot of things about Paul and Timothy, and a lot of things about what God had done in Timothy's life. And it was all for the purpose of verse 6. For this reason, I, Paul, remind you, Timothy. So he wanted to remember so that he could encourage with a reminder. And that concluded, verse 7, concluded that introductory material uh, at the beginning of this letter. Now we're into the main body. He concluded with that, Very common verse, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or of self-control, discipline. And based upon that, you'll find a little word there at the beginning of verse 8, therefore, which points you back to what we just studied, and it now will launch us into the body of the letter. So we're into the heart of what Paul is concerned about for Timothy when we start in verse 8. This evening, what we're going to find tonight is that Paul calls on Timothy and he calls on you and he calls on me under the direction of the Holy Spirit. God calls on us to be shameless, shameless in our suffering for the gospel. Now, shamelessness is not something that we're unfamiliar with. We've all seen shameless activity. Sometimes we have to turn our head away because it's hard to watch someone else make a fool of themselves with shameless activity, whether that be on a television screen or whether that be in person or at a, an event, a social event, and you watch someone be shameless in front of you and you think if only you had a little bit of shame, it would be good. It would kind of contain you a little bit. Maybe you've been on the shameless end of the stick and you've, you've come home or you have stopped whatever the activity was, and you think, what was I thinking? And the answer is, you weren't thinking. 
And that's why you were shameless in your activity. Because if you had a thought about the ramifications, you would have had a little bit of shame before you tried to do the backflip in the yard that you did when you were 10. Okay? You wouldn't have done it. And everybody laughed and had a great time. And you have grass stain on you. And you'll be sore for three weeks. And you think, that was foolish of me. Shameless activity sometimes goes along with sinful activity as well. A shamelessness that comes from a total removal of inhibition, which is a God-given trait from your conscience, where someone who is under the control of another substance acts so foolishly and so irrationally and so illogically and so shamelessly that we're embarrassed for them. And we want them to be back under control. So shamelessness is not something foreign to us, but that is exactly what we're going to be called upon to live out in verse 8 and... That's what's going to be explained to us in verses 8 through 12. It's not a shamelessness in mundane activities of life. It's not shamelessness in a social activity or a game setting or a television show or anything else. This is shamelessness when it comes to the highest priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The centrality and the primacy of the gospel demands of us that we be willing to to shamelessly lay our life on the line for the gospel. And this is difficult. This is a challenge. And this was difficult for Timothy. And don't get the sense that you're not connected to this, this account, that you're somehow different than, than young Timothy was. And Well, he was a pastor, Adam. I mean, Paul's talking to him, and if you knew the context, you would know that this was a pastor. Or he was thousands of years ago. And this was in Ephesus. I don't even know where Ephesus is. This is Kingsburg, or this is the San Joaquin Valley. This doesn't relate to me. This is contextual, and I have a hard time bringing this into my life. Don't get the wrong idea. This battle has been going on since Peter, in the very presence of Jesus Christ, was shameful of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, right in front of the Lord, in fact, the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus looked at him when he denied him. He was that close that from the porch Jesus could see Peter. And Peter, who had just seen the Lord glorified at the transfiguration, denied in shame that he was in any way associated with our Lord Jesus Christ. From from that point all the way through the history of the church and those who would profess to follow Jesus Christ, there have been examples after examples after examples of shameful, shameful lives in the face of suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the gospel is the assumed reality for the New Testament Christian. We've talked about this so much because of Matthew chapter 5. But this is the assumed reality. In fact, Paul will say this. He'll tell us this in chapter 3 and verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the assumption. Paul was confident that if you and I desire to live in accordance with what our New Testament outlines as a follower of Christ, that persecution would come our way. That suffering would be the result. This is the assumption. Matthew 5, 10-12, 2 Timothy 3, 12. 
And all of that brings us then to this particular scenario. And I, I do want to remind you again that Paul is writing here as one who is suffering beyond what any of us have experienced. And he's writing to one who is afraid of suffering in a way that none of us are afraid of suffering. Okay? So the argument is from the greater to the lesser. I mean, Paul is here addressing Timothy, who no doubt is scared of suffering at a level that none of us are scared of suffering. If you are bolder than you have ever been with the gospel this week, you are not afraid of being stoned. It's not going to happen. If you are bolder than you have ever been with your testimony, with your lifestyle, you are bold in proclaiming the glories of the cross, which is foolishness to the world around us. You are not afraid. You are not afraid of being taken outside of town and being beheaded. It's just not part of your fear. And yet what we'll find here is the Apostle Paul addressing one who was very aware of the persecution and the suffering that would come to those who would, in fact, stand shamelessly for the gospel. And he speaks these strong words to him. Now, moving to the lesser, how much more are we responsible to live shamelessly for the gospel when our greatest fear of suffering is that a coworker might snicker and say, you're a dumb Christian. You idiots don't ever use your brain. Why don't you read a science book? Prove to me that God exists. And in the moment, we well up with fear. We well up with shame. And we think, I can't defend myself. Maybe it's not true. And we get scared, and the fear of man brings a snare to us, Proverbs 29, 25 tells us, and we fall flat on our face. So let's take these instructions, which are potent. Let's take these instructions, and let's apply them to our much lesser suffering for the gospel in a way that would benefit us for the glory of God and the furtherance of the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, That's our challenge tonight as we address this passage and these verses. And I think you'll see what we're talking about in just a minute. Let's read them together. Let's read verses 8 through 14. And then we'll jump in and see what God has for us this evening. Therefore, based on this promise, this statement that God has not given them a spirit of fear, that Timothy should be bold... Now verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9. Now describing the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed... For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy goes on then to mention by name 
a few of those who have turned away from this very command. That's how he concludes the first chapter. But for our sake tonight, we're just going to look at verses 8 through 14, and in specific, just verses 8 through 12, as this first primary point of confrontation from the Apostle Paul. There are two imperatives that we find in verse 8 that set us up for all of what we will find in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Two commands given by Paul. One is a negative and one is a positive. These are not hard. You can underline this. Maybe you did um, diagramming when you were in junior high or something and you underlined the subject once and you underlined the verb. Good. We did. Twice. Okay, we did it once and then twice. Anybody else do that? Good. Those were good schools. Wherever you went, that was a good school. You guys have done that? That's a good school. That's a good school. All three of us who underline verbs twice and subjects once, when we come to verse 8, we have no subject to be found. Therefore, do not be ashamed. That's because we have an imperative. We have an understood subject, and the understood subject is you. You, Timothy. And some of you are just going, whoa, we are on a different planet. What in the world are you talking about? I was a, a grammar guy. I love grammar. I was an English minor in college which is secondary, because if you saw my GPA, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But I do care about language. And I do understand that when you find a sentence that doesn't have a subject written, it's because it's understood. And particularly when you have a command, you don't usually have a subject. It's just a statement. Do not be ashamed. And the understood subject is you, Timothy. Don't be ashamed. And the second imperative is the second part of the verse, in verse 8, what's the second imperative? What's the verb, the second verb that we find in verse 8? Share. Right. Share. So you do not be ashamed. Secondly, you share. Now, just as an exegetical note for you, this this is not leading us to believe that Timothy was already ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of Paul. So there are times in your New Testaments when you have a command that actually gives the idea of stop being ashamed. Okay, So it's already happening is the assumption. And now Paul's addressing it and saying, I want this to stop. There is a way to write that. And this is written in a way that doesn't assume that it's already happening, but says don't let it happen. Timothy, don't let yourself become ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. That's Paul's message. Timothy has not abandoned the truth. He has not stood shamefully for the testimony of the Lord or for Paul. But Paul is concerned that he is on the brink. He is in danger of bringing shame or being shameful about the testimony of the Lord and of Paul himself. Now notice, we find in the latter part of verse 8, Two little prepositional phrases, and I had no intention of this being a super grammar lesson, but two little prepositional phrases. And you know prepositional phrases, I'm sure, because of all three of us who studied grammar. At the end of verse 8, we have two prepositions. And if you start at the end of verse 8 and move backwards, what is the first preposition that you come to? Start at the end, move to the back, we come to... Of maybe in your translation, we have by in the ESV, by the power of God. And before that, we have for the gospel. Two little phrases, right? 
These are vital to us. Listen, folks, this is crucial. Verse 8 is built on those two little prepositional phrases. But share, Timothy is to bear up and to be a part of the suffering, but not just any suffering, not just suffering because he's made poor decisions in life, not just suffering because there's sin in his life, not just suffering because he's fallen into hard times in the providence of God. This is a specific suffering that he's to share in with Paul, and it doesn't catch us by surprise. It's suffering for the gospel. And it is suffering not just connected directly to the gospel, but it is a sharing and suffering that is completely dependent upon the power of God. Okay? You have two different facets that make this a very specific command from Paul to Timothy. He is to not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of Paul, the servant of the gospel, and he is to share in the suffering that is directly related to the gospel and that is directly dependent upon the power of God. Say, so why is that so critical to our understanding? Well, for the remainder of these verses, from verse 9 down through the beginning of verse 12, we're going to find five facets of God's power on display in his grace. Okay? There are five realities that Paul speaks to to outline for Timothy the confidence that he should have, the meditation of his heart that should focus his attention on the power of God, which is the means by which he is to share in the suffering. Let me put it to you this way. Shameless suffering for Christ must be, must be accomplished in the power of God's grace for it to be eternal in its reward. It must be accomplished in the power of God's grace. There is no other way to suffer shamelessly for the gospel in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. Verse 8, But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And now beginning in verse 9, he'll give us five realities about the power of God. Right? These are pretty simple. They're right on the, on the surface level. And I'm just going to walk through these, and I trust this will be a blessing to you and an opportunity for you to study further this week as you come back to this text and branch out in your reading in other portions of the Scriptures. Okay, so five facets of God's gracious power. And here is number one in verse 9. The power of God in sovereign grace. The power of God in sovereign grace. Verse 9 outlines the first uh, reality of the power of God, and it tells us about the God whose power we are reliant upon. He is a sovereignly gracious God who saved us. Listen to these verbs and how they're utilized. He saved us, and He called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Is God's work. And that theme carries on throughout, even down to the last section where Paul says he was appointed. It was all God. God had done this work. The sovereign grace of God is the first aspect of the power of God, which is the means for shameless suffering for the gospel. It was God who saved you. It was God who who called you to be conformed to the image of His Son, that Ken read to us from Ephesians chapter 2. That was God's idea. 
It was God's own purpose and grace that drove Him to shower you with sovereign grace if you are in fact in Christ. It's interesting when we come to our Scriptures, sometimes we have a false dichotomy in our minds of of sovereign grace and human responsibility. We, We find ourselves with a myriad of other people finding their attention that is difficult for us to reconcile. Let me help you understand it this way. What Paul is doing in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 is he is taking Timothy up into the heavens to give him God's viewpoint of your salvation and of Timothy's salvation. You want to shamelessly suffer and stand firm, sharing in the suffering for the gospel? then the first aspect of the power of God that must be a part of your meditation, a part of your thinking, and a part of your life is the God perspective of the beginning of your spiritual life. From God's eyes, there was only His work being accomplished. Did we believe? Yes. Have we turned in faith and repented from our sins, placing our full confidence in Jesus Christ? Yes. Is today the day of salvation and only those who will believe will be saved in this age right now? No promise of any other age? Yes. Is that somehow conflicting with the reality that God alone saves? No. Because we are standing in the heavens in verse 9 and we are watching salvation unfold from the very eyes of God. He saves us. He calls us. He sets us apart for His work. And it has nothing to do with our works. But it all is generated from His purpose and His grace. Isn't this amazing? Ephesians chapter 1 further outlines this grand reality. I know this is a favorite passage of many of you. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the power of God in sovereign grace. And this is the primary reality that Paul brings to the mind of Timothy in this letter to call upon him to share shamelessly in the suffering for the gospel. Now it's critical for us 
It's critical for us in the era in which we live for us to evaluate our first impression of our salvation. A lot of times our first impression of our salvation was it was a lot about me. It was a lot about my activity. It was a lot about my belief. It was a lot about me. Listen, I heard the message. I heard it once or twice. I started to mull it over. I had a desire for it. I kept wanting it. And finally, I believed. That's all true. Except the first impression that Scripture would outline for you was that God, before the ages began, set His grace upon you in Christ. And in the time in which He chose, He saved you. And He called you. And He did it because of His purpose and His grace. It was none of you. It was all of Him. This is the power of God in sovereign grace. Some of you, some of you are sitting here tonight, do not find this difficult to grasp. Because your life was so patterned after sin and so directly running after the way of your father, the devil, that in the moment of salvation, God ripped you back and he rescued you from where you obviously were running. Sovereign grace is the blessing of your life. It is the meditation of your heart. It brings you joy beyond belief. For others of you, it's a challenge because you grew up in a Christian environment where the gospel was a part of your existence from an early age. It's difficult to see that God in any way rescued you from what Romans 1 speaks of you as running headlong away from Him. And yet this is exactly the power of God that will sustain you if you are to stand shamelessly sharing in suffering for the gospel. It was God who saved you. Period. Wow. Well, that was number one. I guess we're going to go to number two. I could keep yelling about number one, but we need to move on to the second facet. We've got exactly 14 minutes, according to the all-knowing clock here, the always accurate clock, uh, to get through the next four. Number two, second facet that we find in the second part of verse 9. Not only do we see the power of God in sovereign grace, but we see the, God, the power of God in ancient grace. Look at that last phrase in verse 9. Which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. How is it that in the moment of decision when suffering is knocking at the door in relation to the gospel, that you're going to choose to share in the suffering of all those who have stood firm in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ? How is that going to be? Will it only be as much as it is in accordance with the power of God? And the power of God is revealed in the sovereign grace of His saving work and in His ancient grace of His saving work. Have you ever considered, have you ever pondered what verse 9 says? That He gave us something before time ever was. This is, this is really kind of in the deep end of the pool for us because we're finite. But before there were any ages, before there were any facets of history, before there was any creation, way before Genesis 1.1, Way back, timelessly ago, which is beyond our comprehension, God had already granted us a grace gift. 
What was His grace gift? What had He given us so long ago when there wasn't even long because there was no time? Before the ages began, verse 9 tells us, He gave us something in Christ. It was the power of God. It was the power of God who saved us, not because of our works, and which He gave us in Christ Jesus. The power of God that we possess was granted to us before there was ever any time, before you were ever created, before your greatest grandparent was ever created, before Adam was created, or Eve, before there was space, when God existed just in the presence of Himself, in the fullness of the Trinity. Your brains are allowed to be going to mush at this point. Mine does too. God gave us His power in Christ Jesus. It's not just that He picked everybody and He said, here's all my power. It was those who would be in His Son who would receive this power of God. This is the power of God in ancient grace. Grace that goes beyond our even our comprehension into the past. Titus chapter 1 begins with this grand truth being, being put up at the front of Paul's letter to Titus. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's chosen ones, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, who did God promise that to before the ages began? You really only have a couple of options. And they all end up wrapping back into one option. Who did He promise it to before the ages began? Who was His promise made to that eternal life would be existing for you before you ever existed? Let's go back. Nobody's created. No angels are created. There are no ages. There are no time. There is no time. Who exists in the presence of God? God Himself. He promised according to the counsel of His own will. He made a pledge to Himself before the ages began to provide the hope of eternal life to all who would be in Christ Jesus. This is ancient grace. God's powerful, sovereign grace has always been through the Messiah Jesus even before creation took place. Now, what is the implication of this reality? What does this mean to your theology as a whole? Well, it means a couple of very important things. Number one, sin did not catch him off guard. He was not baffled at what happened at Eden. He was not thinking to himself, my whole plan has been crashed and shattered. I've got to redo. I've got to come up with something better. Nor was he in any way surprised when Jesus was rejected and crucified at the hands of the Romans by the leadership of the Jewish people. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us that it was God who ordained that to take place. Ancient grace, by implication, means that God was not at all caught off guard by the events of the fall, nor the crucifixion of Christ. Nor is He in any way caught off guard by the salvation of sinners. This has been His plan from before there was time. 
This is the power of God in ancient grace. What kind of reality would make us shamelessly share in suffering for the good news of Jesus Christ? What kind of reality would plant us so firmly that we would never waver in the face of imprisonment, in the face of beheading, in the face of being mocked at work, in the face of being made fun of in our culture, in the face of slander about what our church is all about. Whatever the case may be, what would ground us? It would be an awareness, it would be a meditation, it would be the renewing of our mind on the fact that the power of God is revealed in His sovereign grace with which He saved us, and it is an ancient grace which far exceeds our comprehension. God did this. How could I ever turn my back on a God who would save a sinner like me? That's the power of God that will sustain us, that we might share shamelessly in suffering for the gospel. Thirdly, then, we come to this third fasting in verse 10. The power of God in sovereign grace in verse 9. The power of God in ancient grace in verse 9 at the conclusion. And now in verse 10, we see the power of God in present grace. We see the power of God in present grace. Notice a little word at the very front of verse 10, and which now, right now, it's here, which now has been made manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. There is a present reality to the grace that was so anciently devised. It's not that God planned something and never exposed it to those whom He would bless through it. It is now before our eyes. Jesus has come. The incarnation has taken place. The crucifixion has taken place. The resurrection has taken place. The ascension has taken place. It's here. You want to see the power of God in His grace? His name is Jesus of Nazareth. How can we stand shamelessly when it comes to suffering for the Gospel? How can we share with those who are suffering in the Gospel with shamelessness? It's an awareness of the power of God. Not just through His sovereignly bestowed grace, not just through an ancient grace that goes far beyond time, but it is a real and present grace that has been revealed in Christ Jesus. The powerful, sustaining grace of God is seen here in 2 Timothy 1 in the person and the work of Jesus. In verse 10, it's interesting, Paul's choice of words that he uses to describe Jesus or to name Him. He's been, this now has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, very personal, our Savior, our substitute, Christ Jesus. I don't remember where we were. We were in Bible study Friday morning, and David was teaching us in Bible study about the person of Jesus. And he made reference to the fact that he always communicates with the kids that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not David Morris and Jesus Christ. Um, there wasn't a Mr. and Mrs. Christ that had little Jesus Christ. That, that's not how this word is used. This term is a Greek translation of a Hebrew term for what? Messiah. This word is Messiah. This is the promised one. When you read Christ in your New Testaments, the Christ is the promised one of God. This is 
the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of all that was promised from the Old Testament. And this is the manifestation of the power of God in present grace that a Savior who is the promised one of old has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's unbelievable. That's so unbelievable that that's foolish to those who are not believing. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. There's a present grace that reveals to us the power of God. And that present grace is Jesus Himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11, outlined for us what took place for this manifestation to happen. What were the mechanics? Jesus humbles Himself, sets aside His prerogative to rightfully use all of His attributes as the second person of the Trinity. He comes in humility. He is born as a man. He is the man God and He humbles Himself in obedience even to the point of dying. God humbled Himself to die as a man. Not just to die, but to die the death of the cross. And in resurrection life and in victory over death, He is now exalted at the right hand of the Father and in time every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is in fact Lord. Those are the mechanics of the power of God in present grace, in manifested, revealed grace, which is Jesus Christ. We've got time for one more. Let's keep going. Verse 10. We'll finish verse 10. And as much as it pains me, we'll stop on a comma. Okay? And we'll come back to it. Can't stand stopping on commas. I don't like that at all. The power of God and sovereign grace, the power of God we see at the end of verse 9, In an ancient grace, in verse 10, we see the power of God in a present grace, which now has been manifested. And the conclusion of verse 10, we find the power of God in a saving grace who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what happened when that present grace arrived and was manifested? Well, here's what happened. God abolished death. Christ, in His death and in His resurrection completely abolished the power of death for those who are in Christ. Not only did He negatively crush and abolish and set aside death, but He had a twofold spotlight that He shined. Notice at the end of verse 10. Not only did He abolish death, but He brought life and immortality to light through the good news of the gospel. He brought life and immortality to light. I love that phrase. He brought it to light. Um, He shed light on life and immortality. It's as if we were all in darkness. Pitch black darkness. I remember as a kid we were in caverns somewhere. Where were we, Mom? We were in caverns, right? Is this in Pennsylvania? Okay, we're in a cavern in Pennsylvania. And we're down underneath in the depths of the earth. Thousands of miles down. We could hear things. Uh, We're down in the depths of the earth. They click the lights off, and then they tell us to put our hands in front of our face, and it is pitch black. You can't see anything. You can't see your hand right in front of your face. This was our state because we were dead, Ephesians 2 tells us. Everything was pitch black. And in the coming manifestation of Jesus Christ, he not only abolished and crushed and put down forever death in both in all of its power, 
in his resurrection, in both his crucifixion and his resurrection, but he shined a spotlight over onto life and immortality. He brought it to light. He shed light on it. And there was no light on it before he came. Jesus Christ provides for us the power of God in saving grace. A grace that rescues us from death and provides for us life, eternal life, immortality. Though we die physically, our physical death has no sting. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, is so familiar to us. We've just studied this recently as well as we talked about these truths at Easter. Verse 50, Paul says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, that is, never to die again. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must, be put, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The present grace of the manifestation of Christ provides for us a saving grace, the abolishment of death, the total removal of death from the experience of the believer. Yes, there is physical death. But it will only be temporary because it will be replacing the, the mortal with immortal, the perishable body with an imperishable. And eternal life will be the result of the saving grace that is the power of God revealed in Christ. God did these miraculous works, we find at the end of verse 10, through the gospel. The good news of salvation has turned the believer from death to life, from mortality to immortality. These are the grand truths. Paul starts with just a couple of imperatives. Don't be ashamed and share. Some of you young parents, you're saying that a lot. Share, share, share. Paul says share. But he's not talking about a simple physical sharing. He's talking about taking on the suffering that comes when we stand for the gospel. And that suffering and that sharing in a shameless suffering for Christ will only be accomplished as we stand in the power of God. And the power of God is seen in the sovereign grace of God. It is seen in the ancient grace and plan of God. It is seen in the present reality of Christ, present grace. And the power of God is seen in verse 10 in saving grace. Oh, we so got this. All right, number five. Let's finish. We can do it. I remember, I remember, it has not been many years. It's not even been, it's been only a year since I was sitting right where you are and I heard the fateful words, let's finish. I thought, we're never going to finish, okay? I have a long line of pastors who have said, let's finish, but we're going to do it, okay? I'm living out, 
I'm, I'm living their example out for you this evening. Number five, the fifth facet and the final facet, and the most brief, really, in verses 11 and the first part of 12, we see the power of God in exemplified grace. Okay, Paul does not leave Timothy with some theological or theoretical understanding of the power of God. He gives him a concrete, physical evidence of that grace, and it is the very life of the Apostle Paul himself. The power of God is seen not just in the saving, gracious work of God, but in the exemplary grace that is seen in the life of the Apostle. Notice in verse 11, for which, that is the gospel, for which I was appointed. That was the gracious work of God. You remember this? Paul's on the road. He's on the road to persecute Christians. This was real. Grace came out of nowhere. Paul didn't think it over. He didn't consider the truth and make the right decision. God broke through and rescued him from his sin. And not only did he rescue him, he set him apart and he appointed him to specific roles for the glory of the gospel. Paul says, the exemplary grace of my life is that I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. God's grace appointed Paul a herald of the good news. He came from the king to give the king's message. God's grace appointed Paul as a delegate for the king of kings. He came as a sent one, a messenger for the king. One who came as a delegate, as an ambassador. and He was appointed as a professor for God's people. An instructor, one who exposed God's people to His truth from His Word. God's grace not only appointed these realities for Paul, but the first phrase of verse 12, Paul concludes this sentence, mind you, with these words. It's because I was appointed. It's because of the Gospel. Paul says, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. It was God's grace that appointed Paul to be shameless in his suffering as a servant of the gospel. So Paul here gives Timothy such an invaluable treasure, and he gives us such an invaluable treasure, doesn't he? You're struggling. You're finding yourself ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1, 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What he tells Timothy through these verses is that same truth outlined with these five realities. The power of God is seen in sovereign grace, in ancient grace, in present grace, in saving grace, and in exemplified grace. It's all of grace. And the more consumed we are with the grace of God, the more readily we will shamelessly suffer and share in the suffering that comes as a result of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ.